State Senator already indicted on charges for accepting illegal payments is indicted again after investigators say that he tipped off the target of a federal investigation. On November 16, 2017, a grand jury indicted Senator Nathaniel Oakes for obstruction of justice. This as a separate indictment from the previous nine charges related to the bribe he accepted from the FBI informant Mike Henley the individual some suspected was Kahan. The U.S. Attorney's Office said the Baltimore Democrat had agreed to cooperate with the FBI by recording his conversations with the target of a new investigation, which was later revealed to be an unnamed representative of the bail bonds industry. In exchange for the possibility of leniency in the sentencing for his original corruption charge, Oakes was supposed to work as an informant on their behalf. But he did not follow through on his end of the deal. As part of his terms to cooperate, Oakes secretly recorded his phone conversations and in-person meetings with the target. But months into the investigation, Oakes foiled the plan. He approached the target without the FBI's approval and told him, what we talked about, just say no. An attempt to dissuade him to engage in whatever illegal act they were trying to coordinate. A couple of months later, in January of 2018, federal prosecutors revealed that Oakes had confessed to both taking cash payments and to upending the other bribery investigation. The caveat, however, was that he pleaded not guilty. Oaks' lawyers then filed a claim the federal investigation goes beyond Oaks, saying it's part of a larger dragnet investigation into members of the Baltimore City Council and the Maryland legislature. Oaks's lawyers were mounting an entrapment defense. According to a court filing, they claimed that for more than a year, the FBI, quote, coerced, cajoled, and enticed multiple associates and friends of Senator Oakes. Oakes's attorneys wrote that the government's behavior, quote, went beyond mere solicitation and crossed over into inducement. A few weeks later, another important detail was revealed. As stated in a separate court filing, Oakes's attorneys said Robert Barrett, a former aide to a Baltimore County executive, who because of his own legal trouble started working with the FBI as an informant, was told by an unnamed developer that both Oakes and City Council President Jack Young had a history of accepting bribes. If the case that the City Council President was a target of an FBI corruption investigation wasn't strong enough before, it certainly was now. Do you remember meeting with someone who was with Nathaniel Oakes talking about economic development in a particular yes. area of the city? Yes. Do you remember going on a ride along? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, did you look at a particular piece, two pieces of property across the show, Showed a couple pieces of property across the city. That's part of my job. That was the city council president, Jack Young, admitting to Jane Miller, a reporter for WBAL a local TV station, that he had went on a ride-along with Senator Oakes and the man suspected to be Mike Henley. 
In a written statement to the press, Young staunchly denied any wrongdoing, saying he routinely meets with developers to try to bring economic development to Baltimore. He was right. Just because he went on a ride-along with an FBI informant did not mean he did anything illegal. But what it does suggest is that he was more than likely a target of the investigation and that he should have known the identity of Mike Henley. The minute I spoke to Jack Young's chief of staff and mentioned the name Kahan Dillon to him, he clammed up immediately. Yeagley was able to set up a time to speak by phone with Lester Davis, the city council president's deputy chief of staff and director of policy and communications. Lester did not agree to have the call recorded and ultimately declined to have him or his boss be interviewed for the story. But here's Yeagley's telling of their conversation. First of all, everything I hear about City Council President Jack Young is that he's very weary of the media. So getting an interview with him is quite a challenge. So with that in mind, I knew I couldn't ask the specifics of my question, what is your relationship with Kahan Dillon, in an email. I, I knew I wouldn't get a response and any dialogue would be shut down right at that moment. So instead, I, I reached out to Lester Davis who was his main policy and communications person and from what I hear from most people is his most trusted staffer and told him that I wanted to discuss a radio documentary I was producing about Baltimore and real estate development. Once on the call, I mentioned I was doing a story on the connection between real estate and politics in the city. And although I left the details vague, I did name drop Kahan Dillon as the main subject. He abruptly told me they would decline to be interviewed and deferred to some of the other members of the city council. I'm sure Lester wanted the conversation to end there, and I knew the phone call would be over if I didn't push. So I did. I asked what the relationship was between Kahan Dillon and his boss, the city council president. And without even considering, he quickly denied even knowing who he was. When I asked if his boss knew him, as if he knew of every person his boss had knowledge of, he staunchly said no. When I told him that I was in the waiting room several months back while his boss had a meeting with Kahan, he then backtracked and confirmed that they had met once. I knew this wasn't true for, I know Jack Young along with a member of his staff had went on ride-alongs with Kahan. This was verified by someone in his office who has access to their calendar. I also have an email in which Jack Young introduces Kahan to all members of the city council. I mean, clearly you wouldn't do such a thing without being close with someone, let alone only having met them once. I wrapped the conversation by asking if his boss ever went on ride-alongs with Kahan, which Lester emphatically denied. It was obvious that he was lying. I guess he was scared to have his boss's name attached in any way with Kahan. I thought at the time it was because they suspected or even knew that Kahan was the FBI informant Mike Henley. But it wasn't until a few months later that potential clarity was offered. On March 3rd, 2018, in a surprising move, Oaks's lawyers revealed the identity of the confidential informant 
Mike Henley. And it was not Cahan Dillon. His name was William Miles. Years and years and years ago, William Miles was a car settlement. This is John McClendon, a criminal defense attorney out of Louisiana. You know, he was uh, he was very good at what he did. When you listen to all these phone calls, there were hours and hours and hours of phone calls. He was very smooth, very good at what he did and, and kind of tricking these guys or persuading them to commit crimes, I should say. In 2011, McClendon represented a police chief in a case in which William Miles was able to get his client to accept a bribe. I don't have any problem with the FBI you know, uh, routing out public corruption. I'm, I'm okay with that. Just the manner that they went after my particular client was really offensive. Um, my guy did. My guy was like, you know, I'm not, yeah, I'll get back to you on that. I kind of kept putting him off and putting him off and putting him off and William just kept calling back and kept calling back and, and just wore him down with, you know, tickets to Saints football games, tickets to the basketball game, uh, uh, money, I mean, just really worn down, and I think the jury saw that. But, you know, look, this guy's never done anything wrong in his life. He tried to brush you off, he tried to get rid of it, kept coming back, kept coming back, and after about, I think it was 60 days, my guy finally, you know, did something, uh, you know, took some tickets or something like that. But that's classic entrapment. Although McClendon was able to get the jury to acquit his client on all 11 charges, many other public officials weren't as lucky. Over the years, William Miles has been involved in countless investigations in numerous cities across the U.S. Court filings revealed that Miles was paid $1.1 million over a decade of work with the FBI. But although most of his cases end in the conviction of a public official, the exact number of investigations and ultimate convictions he helped to secure is unknown. Because most cases result in some sort of plea deal, he rarely testifies in court. Two things. One, he was good at it, and he told me he loved He said he loved doing what he did, and um, I, I, I probably loved it for two reasons. One, he would tell you he loved it as he liked uh, they like busting corrupt politicians, but I would imagine he also loved it for the lifestyle that the FBI gave him, but it was pretty sweet, you know. 702 BFW, apartment on St. Charles Avenue in New Orleans, which is a pretty nice street. Country club membership, uh, accounts and restaurants. Uh, I mean, he was living hard. And we loved him. He told me that. This was the argument that Oakes's attorneys were prepared to make on behalf of the senator. That Miles, a de facto professional FBI informant, had a livelihood that was dependent upon inducing public officials into corrupt activity. They tried to justify it in trial by saying, hey, we have the guys that look like they're successful developers, so he's got to drive a nice car, he's got to be able to go to nice restaurants, play golf. I mean, they paid, they paid for his dry cleaning, they paid for his maid to clean his house. I mean, it got a little ridiculous. I remember I, I told a jury in my opening statement, I said, my client's charged with stealing about $3,000. And 
way around the dry cleaning bill so that during this investigation uh, was like $700,000. <laughs> so it got a little crazy. A professional FBI informant. A corrupt politician who flips to work with the FBI only to flip on them. And a city council president who was more than likely being investigated by the feds. Some lingering questions were starting to be answered. But what about the mysterious Sikh developer from Northern Virginia? The man many people suspected was Mike Henley. Where did he fit into this story? And was he even connected in any way to the ongoing FBI investigation? The burning question of who is Kahan Dillon and why was he in Baltimore? That still wasn't answered. William Miles was Mike Henley and Kahan Dillon, well, he was still just a mystery. Here you have the mayor's office who thought Kahan was involved in the FBI probe. Numerous sources also thought he was. There was the fact that he went on ride-alongs with Jack Young around the time Oaks was targeted, which was something the informant was documented to have done. There's the suspicious behavior, the constant discussion about trust, the limited information about his past, the general caginess, the obsession with corruption, the pay-to-play language he consistently used. All of these things seem to paint a picture of, I mean, something didn't seem right. I listened back to all of my recordings with Kahan. I reread my journals. I, I mean, I guess I was looking to see if I somehow missed something, something egregious, something to elucidate things for me. But it was a lot of the same stuff. Kahan talking about a plan, a $10 billion plan that was too pie in the sky to even be considered legitimate. There was tons of bragging, lots of grandeur, plenty of suggestions that people were trying to bribe him. Nothing really elucidating in the recordings. But it wasn't until I listened back to some of the conversations that I had with Michael Amph, the journalist working on the story that was never published, that I had a potential theory. Michael said that he spoke with people within the mayor's office who were convinced that Kahan wore wire or, as he said, had something to do with the person who wore the wire. Well, with the newly released information about William Miles, we now know that he was Mike Henley, the person who in fact wore the wire. But what could it have meant that he had something to do with the person wearing the wire? I looked back at the original affidavit, which was the criminal complaint and arrest warrant for Nathaniel Oakes that was released on April 7th of 2017. This is months before I even started working on the story. And there was one rather interesting detail that to this point I seem to have completely glossed over. In the investigative summary, it stated that on September 21st, 2015, a cooperating individual who was the subject of a different FBI investigation introduced Oaks to an FBI confidential human source who portrayed himself as an out-of-town business person interested in obtaining contracts in the city of Baltimore through a minority-owned business. 
The company is a real business that is operated by a different cooperating defendant who is assisting the FBI with the investigation. We know the cooperator was Robert Barrett, the former aide to a Baltimore County executive, and that the confidential human source was William Miles. But this different cooperating defendant who operated the real business that William Miles pretended to be working for, that person was unknown. And Kahan did still fit that profile. Now that Oakes and his attorneys were taking the case to court, using an entrapment argument as their defense, it was possible that all three of the informants to this investigation, Barrett, Miles, and this different cooperating defendant who may or may not have been Kahan, would have to testify. But before there was any chance to know for sure, Oakes and his attorneys made a deal with prosecutors. We do want to start with breaking news. Maryland State Senator Nathaniel Oakes pleads guilty to federal bribery in court this morning, less than 24 hours after resigning. On March 29, 2018, Oakes and his attorneys dropped the entrapment argument and instead pleaded guilty to a pair of federal corruption charges. In exchange, the federal prosecutors dropped eight charges against him. The case was no longer going to trial, and the identity of the different cooperating defendant was not going to be revealed. I mean, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he is an informant, maybe he was an informant. He did his time, helped get Oaks, and who knows who else, and is off the hook on whatever he did. And maybe now he's trying to use the connections he made to better his real estate career. But maybe, I mean, this could all have just been coincidental, and maybe he was in no, no way involved in the Oaks case and was in no way affiliated or associated with the FBI at all. I mean, I don't know. There were so many unanswered questions. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I ever will. I usually and often will not use any of the audio from me, but uh, I'll just have it just in case. Okay. To an outside observer, it appeared that Kahan Dillon was trying to establish himself as a public figure within the city. And although he had many fervent supporters, there were people who started to question his legitimacy and intentions. But very few, however, would talk publicly and on the record about their experiences meeting him or the opinions they had. Thomas Bourne, also known as Tommy B., was an outspoken critic who was willing to speak openly. I want a few people that just like basically just told him like he's completely BS. Like, like we you can't bullshit me. Man. <laughs> like, I can see right through you, and it's because I have a like a, a like intense like love for the city. You know, Tommy is tied deeply to the Baltimore community, especially the Southeast. African American and in his early thirties, he is a paragon of a community activist. Me, I was born and raised in Baltimore. I never lived outside of six ninety five my entire life. So um, I, I kind of have some ownership of the city when it comes to things. 
I'm the guy that comes to Baltimore's defense in a lot of the social forums. I'm the guy that kind of calls people out on BS, you know. I'm, I'm the no-nonsense guy. And because of that, I guess he saw that the influence that came from that and kind of wanted to try to align himself with me. Kahan and Tommy were running in the same circles for a few months. They would often bump into one another at events for a local nonprofit. And although Tommy found Kahan to be, as he described, a bit cartoonish, he didn't suspect anything nefarious about him. Initially, it seemed totally fine. He was basically, you know, going around doing this in his campaign mode as he would. But then when I noticed some of his commentary got kind of negative, kind of disgusting, actually, considering that, um, you know, we, we, we've had a black female leadership in the mayor's office for a long time. In the fall of 2017, and a few months after the city council hearing, Kahan started an aggressive attack campaign on Catherine Pugh, Baltimore's African-American female mayor. Whereas before, he was looking for someone to connect him with the mayor in hopes of forming a relationship, now he went on a full-court press to try and challenge her. He was posting non-stop on Facebook, three and four times a day, blaming the mayor for all of Baltimore's woes. He confronted her on a local news site to a public policy debate. He created the hashtag, the Baltimore crisis, and tied it to the mayor's poor performance. He even demanded that she resign. And to just see, hear, see the kind of words he would use, speaking to, towards them about them, it kind of reminds me of kind of like how Trump does with women, and especially women of color. You know, I mean, um, it's just uncalled for. So I called him out on it. I really did. Um, and then that's when the, the rift came about, and that's when I kind of like decided to distance myself from him. Tommy was one of only a few people to actually challenge Kahan. He did so in a public forum on his neighborhood community page and directly on Kahan's Facebook page. The posts became quite nasty. He had said something that was just like completely evil. I, I was like, look, man, I mean, I, I called him out on it, you know, straight called him a carpetbagger, like, like all, all these things. And um, I guess he took offense to it, but I saw how easy it was to rile him up. And it was like, it was funny because here's this guy who says, you know, he, you know, has his aspirations, he doesn't need all these people, yet he's sounding off on Facebook kind of like Trump was sound off on his Twitter, you know, except he had a lot more characters to play with, so it kind of made him look even crazier, you know. So he would go off on these little spiels, like every time a news story came out negative about the city, he would jump on the chance. And it was just like, okay, are you campaigning? Like, what, is you, what are you doing? You know what I mean? If this is a city that you want to help. You're certainly alienating the leaders. You know what I mean? Like, it would take a person two seconds to look at your social media footprint and kind of see the way you think and the ways you represent yourself. And it's like, there's no tact involved with it. It just seems like rants, you know? Tommy spent six hours one night publicly debating Kahan on a highly followed Facebook neighborhood page. Once the conversation was shut down by the page administrator, they took their conversation to private messenger. Next thing you know, I look up. It was 3 a.m. in the morning. This dude had went back and forth with me. Like, and it wasn't even like, oh, he had good point, counterpoint, right? It was, I would make a good point. I would share him data to go up a point. 
And then his rant would just just go left field, and it's just like, okay. You know, it's kind of like they're saying, they say you don't play chess against a pigeon, because no matter how bad you beat it, it'll knock all the pieces off the table and strut around like it won. You know what I mean? That's kind of what he is. <laughs> That's definitely what he is. Over the next several months, this situation played out a few other times with various different people. Like Tommy B., if anyone challenged him on social media or voiced a difference of opinion, Kahan and a few of his supporters would attack and castigate them for being an assumed Catherine Pugh supporter. At times, he would even suggest that the mayor herself put them up to it. Kahan's social media posts were incessant many of which were long, stream-of-consciousness rants that were devoid of punctuation and proper grammar. For a man that was purporting to be a big-shot developer, who was presenting himself as a fledgling leader within the city, having so much time on his hands to focus on trolling people on the internet was not a good look. So at this point, it's early 2018, a good several months after I last spoke with Kahan. And the only way I was able to track what he was doing was by word of mouth and through his social media pages, which he was very active on. I was fascinated by the continued support that he was receiving. Watching some of the comments from his advocates, the dynamic almost sounded messianic in nature. I mean. People would say he was a great man, someone who can change Baltimore. And this is an actual quote that he single-handedly had done more for the city than the current mayor. It was shocking and quite frankly, a little weird because up to this point, Kahan Dillon hadn't spent a single dollar of his proclaimed wealth on development in Baltimore City. But this adulation intrigued me. I wanted to speak with some of his advocates, and although Kahan was protective when I was embedded in his inner circle, now that I was on my own, I thought I could speak with a few of them to understand what they saw in Kahan and his vision for Baltimore. But that was naive. Kahan placed a gag order on his team members. One of them, Mike, a guy who was at one of the earlier marketing meetings, was going to meet and do an interview, but backed out last minute, saying in an email, I got a message from Kahan, and he said I couldn't meet with you. Uh, sorry, but I have an NDA with him that I do not want to violate. Not only did he make most of his team members sign non-disclosure agreements, uh, and therefore they feared the consequences of speaking with me, Kahan also blasted out a warning. There is a guy named Richard that seems to be trolling my Facebook page that may contact you all, suggesting he is a journalist doing a documentary or story on me. If you hear from him, I would appreciate if you would private message me or send me an email. In that same message where he warned people against speaking to me, Kahan made an additional claim, one that seemingly came out of left field. Note to all, I have received messages from many of you and hence wanted to make you all aware of something. There is a rumor which is gaining more traction daily that I may be running for mayor of Baltimore, and it has attracted a lot of attention. 
I kid you not, Kahan started chattering about how he was considering a run for mayor. The mayor of Baltimore, a city in which he wasn't even a resident. It wasn't like he officially launched a campaign or anything, but he was essentially just starting his own rumor about exploring the option of running for mayor. I mean, at this point, he's a Virginia resident, and as far as I could tell, all he did was take meetings on Fridays in Baltimore for a supposed citywide redevelopment plan of which not a single development had even been initiated. And yet he thought he had the clout to run for the highest office within the city. I mean, I would have loved to have laughed at the whole mayoral candidacy rumor that Kahan was creating. But the worst part about it, he had supporters who ate it up. Hashtag Kahan for mayor became a constant refrain within his community. My name is Kim DeFranco, and I have lived in Baltimore now for nine years. Kim was not part of Kahan's team. Therefore, she never signed the NDA he made his team members sign. But she was supportive of what he represented, including his supposed political aspirations. This is the worst I have ever seen it since I've lived here. I don't know if there was a time it was worse with the way things are being run, the constant misappropriation of funds. There's, there's obvious corruption. There's obvious, um, you know, kind of cronyism going on in there. And I'm glad that he's putting all that in the forefront because people need to talk about it more. Year after year, you know, we find out about some things, nothing really happens, nothing ever gets better. Year after year, it's the same people doing the same things. I know that we've, you know, a couple people move in and out of our leadership, but but it's not good enough. Um, I think the problems run very deep in City Hall. Say what you want about the legitimacy of Kahan's political desires. His rhetoric was appealing to the Baltimore voters, who were frustrated with business-as-usual politics within City Hall. Um, I mean, I think there need to be more voices like his that are more upfront and vocal and don't try to sugarcoat it to kind of get that movement, because people should be pissed at this point. You know, people, people, the voices need to grow more in numbers of this, this kind of open opposition. As of the recording of this story, Kahan Dillon has yet to establish residence in the city of Baltimore, which would preclude him from being permitted to run for public office in the city. The fact that he would want and think he could run for mayor of a city in which he wasn't even a resident says a lot. I mean, Kahan's self-image is inflated to the max. And quite frankly, that's only boosted by the admiration and deference many of his followers had for him. I mean, I saw this with the people that were part of his team, and as I watched, I saw the same thing from some of his Facebook fans who, at this point, could only be described as syncophants. Kahan Dillon, you have been a blessing to not only Baltimore, but myself. When you see this face, just call him Mr. Baltimore. His name is Kahan Dillon. This is the man that we need to run Baltimore. My work in Baltimore City led me to a meeting with Mr. Kahan Dillon, a generous and brilliant man who I am proud to call my mentor. His commitment to solving the Baltimore crisis and helping people is beyond that of anyone else I've seen here. 
These were three separate Facebook posts by different supporters, all three of which were verified as legitimate accounts run by real people. Throughout the process of covering this story, it was difficult to have conversations with people from Kahan's past. But I did, however, speak multiple times with two women who had romantic relationships with Kahan. Neither wanted to be interviewed for the story and didn't want their names included, but both said a variation of the same thing. He had a savior complex, and a certain type of person, including both women I spoke with, would fall for the hype. Manipulation was a word one woman used. Brainwash was a word the other woman did. His power, his influence, his appeal, it was the cult of personality. Properly defined, the cult of personality is a phenomenon when a leader or public figure creates an idolized or heroic persona that becomes the center of quasi-worshipful adoration. A heroic persona that becomes the center of a quasi-worshipful adoration that hits the nail on the head. I mean, the posse that accompany him to his meetings, the glowing reviews I'd later learn he get many of his followers to write on social media, the godlike, savior-like rhetoric he used when talking about himself. It was the cult of personality, but on a local level, and it was being executed by an outsider who looked at Baltimore and its leaders as incapable of solving its own problems. But the crazy thing about it, the thing I kept asking myself, is why Baltimore? And why are some of the people of this town so gullible that they could be drawn to this hollow appeal? Town of the Big House is brought to you by Dickie Bruce Productions, a media production company specializing in nonfiction content.